This is, there we go. There we go. Thank you all for sharing that song with us this morning. Great reminder to the adults in the room of a truth that we need to hear. Thank you guys for sharing that. They'll be sharing a song with us each week this month, so you'll want to be here uh, to hear that. We're going to do something we did back in the summer. Uh, we call this Sermon in the Sack, but you all notice I don't have my brown paper sack anymore. I've upgraded to this wonderful Christmas bag. And if you're <laughs> excited about that. And uh, as you all know, the way this works is I'm going to give you guys some clues. And if you can guess what is in the sack, you'll get to take it home. Now, there, there are some amazingly wonderful things in the sack today that you will want uh, to have for the rest of your life. I mean, I just guarantee you're going to be so excited um, about what's in, in the sack this morning. And so I'm going to give you five clues if we get to all five. I'll give you five clues, and if you think you know what the answer is, we don't do any of that raising hands business over here. You may do that in the other building, but over here, I want you to jump up, okay? And just like you guys were throwing your hands up during that song, I want to see you jump up and throw your hand up like this, okay? So that's the way we're going to answer. I love how y'all crouch like this. It makes me laugh. So, all right, so here's the first clue. Now, here's the deal. No guessing on the first clue. You'll ruin this for me. If you all get it on the first clue. So no guessing on the first clue. You got to at least wait till the second one. Because one of you guys are probably going to get it from the beginning. All right. For clue number one of what's in the sack today is this. They are probably the oldest of their kind. Okay. No, no guessing yet, Zachary. You're, I'm loving your tie, by the way. I'm loving your tie this morning. They are probably the oldest of their kind. All right. Now, here's second clue. Second clue is this. They were all the same until the 1800s when they went right and left. Zachary, I'm going to have to let you guess one. Guess one. What do you think it is? An egg. An egg. Not, it's not an egg. That's, it's, that's, that's a good guess, but not an egg. Let's have Jaden, you give us a guess. A what? A Bible? No, it's not a Bible. It's not a Bible. What do you think? <laughs> fake snow. <laughs> All right, let's, let's get another clue. Let's, let's get another clue. I'll let you guess the first time next time. Let's get another clue here. All right, the very first ones were made of leather and wood. The very first ones were made of leather and wood. What do you think? Ornaments. Ornaments? Ah, so that's, you're getting maybe closer now. What do you think, Justin? <laughs> I got you all confused. All right, everybody sit. We're all going to get another clue here. It, it start, it'll start to get clearer at this clue. Some of you may catch on to this one. This is a Bible question. If you've been listening to Sunday school class, you might have caught this one. In Bible times, they were sometimes given as a sign of a promise. In Bible times, what do you think, Cody? Sometimes an angel? Think about something that you probably have. What do you think, Amelia? No, not a cross necklace. What do you think? A present? All right, here's your last clue. Everybody said this, will, this one will give it away for you. I have to watch really closely. So you all be judges out there of who jumps up first. All right, last clue. <laughs> this is going to be impossible. All right. You usually only wear them in the summer. Less than you were the first. Flip-flops. Very good. You all can be seated. The answer was actually sandals. And thank you, Weston. Y'all give him a hand. Now, Weston, if you'll dig out from the bag here, 
this amazing set of flip-flops. You are getting this morning my favorite pair of flip-flops, which, by the way, they broke this summer. And uh, I, I learned an important lesson. Y'all sit down just a second. I'm going to tell you a quick story. I learned an important lesson about flip-flops this summer, and that's uh, when you're out of town on a shopping trip and you have no other shoes and your flip-flop breaks, it makes for a really hard day. I don't know if you've ever tried to walk in a flip-flop that looks like this, but it looks like you have some kind of a conniption as you're dragging your leg around. You look like you're one of the zombie people or something. But Weston, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wheel to you my favorite pair of broken flip-flops, and you can take those home and give them to your dad or whatever you want to do there. You don't even get the Christmas bag because i got to use it next week, so that has to stay here. All right, before you all go... <laughs> Before you all go this morning, there is a point, there is a point to the flip-flops. We're going to be seeing in the scripture this morning how a sandal could be given as a sign of a promise. Now we're going to see a couple of promises in the scripture this morning. One promise, a big promise, that was made by God to his people, but also a promise that occurs between a few people in the scriptures in Ruth chapter 4. And here's what I want you to do as you get ready to go back to your seats. Your moms and dads have taken up all of the uh, outlines this morning. And here's what I want you to do. When you get back to your seat with your mom or dad or whoever you're sitting with this morning, I want you to reach over and and their version of the the, uh, little bulletin this morning, I want you to take it from them. This is allowed. Your pastor said you could, so it's all good. I want you to take it from them, and if you can fill out all the words on the back this morning, then at the end of the service, Miss Jeannie will have a special present for you. She doesn't know we're doing this, but I'm going to tell her right now. She's going to have a special gift for you that you'll get right back in the back of the corner, right back here. And so grab your mom or dad's bulletin, and you pay close attention this morning, and if you can get all the words that are, that are the blanks on the back here, then Miss Jeannie will have something much better than an old ratty pair of sandals for you as you leave this morning. So, God bless you. Let's pray together, and I'll send you back to your seats. Father, thank you for these kids. Thank you for the song that they share with us this morning. And thank you for what we're getting ready to learn together today in your word. Lord, may we leave this morning with this message ringing in our hearts that we are not alone because you are with us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. If you have one of these kids, if you want to stand and let them see where you are, If you're mom, dad, grandparents, whoever they're sitting with this morning, if you'll just stand right where you are so they can see you and get headed in the right direction. All right, if you have your Bibles this morning, if you'll open up to the book of Ruth, chapter 4. Ruth chapter 4 today is where we'll be in the scriptures this morning. We're going to bring to a close today this wonderful little book that we've been walking through here in our Old Testament. And... uh, there is a lot here today, and I'm going to try to do, to do justice to a chapter that is just so packed. This could, this could have been two or three sermons uh, in and of itself. But 
But before we get to Ruth chapter 4 this morning, I really need for everyone to understand that this chapter is best understood in a, in a broader context. What we're getting ready to see God do is this. We've been focused in on the life of this woman, Ruth, who is the namesake of this book. We've been walking through her life as a, she was a Moabite who married into a Jewish family. She comes to Bethlehem with her mother-in-law after experiencing three funerals, that of her, of her husband, her father-in-law, and her brother-in-law. Those, all the men of the family die, and her and her mother-in-law travel back to Bethlehem as poor widows. She's been out gleaning in the field, seeking to do what she could to provide for her and Naomi her mother-in-law. She's met this man named Boaz. There's been kind of a little bit of a romance going on here, and some great things have been happening. We've seen how God has put these two people together. But now we're coming to the end of this book, and and something's going to happen today that you would easily miss if if you don't uh, just really pay close attention, and, and that's this. God is going to, for just a moment, pull back the veil of heaven so that we can see the bigger picture of what he's been doing all along in this little Old Testament book. You see, really, ultimately, this story is not about Ruth. It's not really about Naomi. It's not really about Boaz. There is a bigger picture here. And at the end of our scriptures today, God is going to pull back the veil just a little bit so that we can see that his plan is so much bigger than just this little family and yet they were a crucial part of what he was doing. And so I want to I show you this in the context of a, of a bigger picture. If you want to flip over to Genesis chapter 12, just for a minute, I want to show you this. In Genesis chapter 12, we meet a guy named Abraham, and God enters into a covenant with Abraham. And that's not a word that we use a lot anymore. But when you hear the word covenant, here's what I want you to think of. A covenant is a God-sized promise. And ultimately, if you understand a covenant correctly, it's, a, it's the kind of promise that only God can keep. He's the only one who knows enough and is able enough to keep it. And truthfully, if we really understood it rightly, he's the only one willing to keep it uh, on, on the very, uh, very realistic, most realistic place in things. But here in Genesis chapter 12, we see God's covenant with Abraham. And the Lord said to Abraham in verse 1, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will give you. The picture is this. Abraham, if we were to modernize the picture, Abraham's sitting in, in, his, in, his, in his lazy boy in front of the TV one day, and God speaks to him and says, Abraham, I want you to get up out of the lazy boy, and I want you to leave your home, and I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you. It's a pretty good distance away, and I'm not even going to tell you where you're going. I just want you to get up, and I want you to leave. I'm going to lead you, and I'm going to provide for you. Will you trust me? The Bible says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And listen to what the Lord said in verse 2. Abraham, go to the land, I'll show you, and I will. Listen to the I wills here. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Here it comes again. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And you move down to verse 7. And it says, And the Lord appeared to Abraham and said this, To your offspring, I will give this land. 
If we were to sum this up, there are three basic promises that God makes to Abraham, and, and you'll see how this fits with Ruth 4 as we move through this today. The first promise is this. He promised Abraham a people. Now, you've got to keep in mind here, in Genesis chapter 12, Abraham is 75 years old. His wife is 65 years old, and that meant the same thing then as it does now. They were well beyond childbearing years. All that stuff wasn't working anymore, if you know what I mean. If you don't, ask your mom and dad when you get home. We'll leave that on them. So God comes to this old man Abraham and, and his old lady, and he says to her, to them, I'm going to make of you a great nation. Only one problem. We ain't got no kids. That's not good English, but it is good biblical understanding of what's taking place here. No kids. They're already beyond childbearing years. And God says, I'm going to make of you, your descendants are going to become a great nation. In fact, they'll be so great, they'll be more numerous than the stars in the sky, more numerous than the dust of the earth. They're going to, there's going to be so many descendants, they won't even be able to be counted. And yet Abraham and Sarah have how many kids? Big goose egg, zero. And they're well beyond childbearing years, but Abraham believed the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Second promise. In verse 3, God promises Abraham, and I'm going to give you purpose in life. You've gotten out of the spiritual lazy boy. You're walking with me through into this land that I'm going to show to you, but I've got a purpose for you, Abraham. We often miss this when we think about Abraham, but verse 3 he says to you, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make you what? I'm going to make you a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. In you, all the families, all the nations, all the peoples of the earth shall be blessed. Basically, God was saying to Abraham, you're going to be my funnel through which I'm going to send my blessing to all the peoples of the earth. God didn't choose the most powerful of nations, the most wealthy of nations, the most well-educated of nations. He chose the smallest and the weakest through which to display his power. The Bible says his power is made perfect in our weakness. And that's why he chose Israel. He chose the descendants of Abraham to be a conduit of his grace to the nations. Promise of purpose. But thirdly, and this comes into play in our scriptures today, the promise of a place. Verse 7, he said to Abraham, who was a nomad who traveled from place to place just looking for enough grass and enough water to feed his flocks. He says to Abraham, to your offspring I will give this land and we see a chapter later that god takes abraham up on a high mountain and he says look as far as you can see as far as your eyes can see i'm going to give you all the land that you see out before you and again abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness but these promises were god's covenant with abraham and yet abraham only saw in his lifetime just the first glimmer of their fulfillment that's so often how God works, isn't it? That sometimes we just see just the first glimmer of what God is doing. And sometimes we're a part of a much bigger picture than we even can begin to understand. I believe that's where Abraham was. And I know that's where Ruth and Boaz were in Ruth chapter 4. But I want you to see the glimmer this morning that God shows us as he brings this powerful story in the Old Testament to a close. Ruth chapter 4. Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? You remember where we left off last week? 
Ruth has basically come to Boaz at the threshing floor, and she pretty much popped the question, asking if he would marry her. He says, well, I would, but there's one other guy that's first in line for this responsibility of, of being able to provide for you, and I need to talk with him first. So Boaz goes. He said he would not rest. In chapter 3, he will not rest until he settles this matter today. So Ruth chapter 4, let's pick up in verse 1. It says, now Boaz had gone up to the gate. And you need to understand, when you, think, when you hear gate here, think city hall. He's gone to the courthouse. He's got some business to take care of, and that's where he is. He had gone up to the gate, and he sat down there, and behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. There's another one of those. He just happened to come by. <laughs> Convenient, right? Hand of God is at work here. The Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by, and so Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. And so they also sat down. Then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell you of it today. And say, buy it, buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he, the Redeemer, said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Note that. Lest I impair my own inheritance, take my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. And this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. And then Boaz said to the elders and the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead and his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of the, his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez. We'll come back to this this morning. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, 
a son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And you can be seated. And Father, as we see this morning in this scripture, the, the drawing to a close of this powerful historical account of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz and now little Obed. Lord, may we not leave this place today without seeing our Redeemer in the midst of this story. That in all truth, Boaz was not the Redeemer. Obed was not the Redeemer. Naomi and Ruth needed a greater Redeemer And we know Him as Jesus Christ. And may we see Him in the pages of these scriptures. And may we know that Your promise remains for us. In Jesus' name, Amen. I want you to keep in mind this morning as we walk through these scriptures, those promises that were made to Abraham. The promise of a people. The promise of purpose and the promise of a place. Those three things become very important in our understanding of what's taking place here in Ruth chapter 4. The theme of Ruth chapter 4 is this. It's all about our Redeemer. The word Redeemer occurs over and over and over again here. And again, it's this amazing word, this Hebrew word, goel. Which, which refers to a role that, that a man could fulfill to one of his near kinsmen. If a man in the family died and he left a widow who had no sons, no one to take care of her, then the goel of the family could step in, the near kinsman could step in and could provide for that woman, not just a home, but also descendants that would take the name of the man who had died her former husband, so that his inheritance could be carried on, his name could be carried on, and he would not be cut off. He would not be cut off from those who were living. And that was so important in that day for them. The greatest curse that could happen to a man in that day was for him to die without anyone to carry on his name. I know we kind of get that a little bit today. It seems a little bit sad if somebody's family name is no longer carried on because there's no son to carry it on. But in those days, it was seen as a huge shame that a man would die without any son to carry on his name and to take on his inheritance. And so the theme of the Redeemer reminds us of our Redeemer. The first thing I want you to see in verses 1 through 6 is this, that we are wanted by our Redeemer. We are wanted by Him. Just take that in for a minute. And in fact, I could say to you today, if you were to walk away this morning with no other thought on your mind, would you leave this morning knowing that He wants you? He desires you. You may come into this place this morning feeling that no one wants you. You may come in this place feeling as the undesirable. Who would want me? Maybe because of all the things that you've experienced in life or the, the sins that you've committed or the things that have been done to you. Would you understand this morning that Jesus wants you? 
He desires you as Boaz desired Ruth, and he would not rest until she was redeemed. So Jesus would not rest until we were redeemed. And we'll see the picture here. But there were three prerequisites to being a Goel, to being a redeemer that had to be fulfilled. And they come into play for us. First of all, a redeemer had to be a near relative. That's why there's this, there's this heartbreaking moment at the threshing floor. Ruth has basically popped the question to Boaz, ask, asking him to marry her. And he basically says, I would love to do that. But there's another closer kinsman that gets first dibs here. It may sound strange to us. We don't really understand fully the cultural implications of all of that. But basically, Boaz, as a man of integrity, was saying, I want to do this for you, but there's somebody closer in relation to Elimelech that gets first choice. I've got to talk to him first. A near relative had to be, that was the first prerequisite for being a Goel, for being a redeemer. Number two, a redeemer had to be ready to pay the price. You see, it wasn't just as simple as bringing a widow into your home. Most of the time, these widows were, were deeply in debt because they had sold everything that they had in order to meet the needs for food and daily necessities. They, they were deeply in debt, and they, oftentimes they had sold away all their land and any of the rights that, to that land in order to be able to plant and to harvest from that land. As, remember, this is an agricultural society that we're talking about here in the Old Testament. Everything was tied up in the land. Money wasn't, wealth wasn't what you had in your pocket. It was the number of acres that you owned and being able to produce from that. And the Redeemer had to be ready to pay the price to pay off the debt that was owed by the one to be redeemed. He had to be ready to pay the price. And number three, a redeemer had to be resolved with desire. A redeemer had to be resolved with desire. What I mean by that is this. The redeemer had to desire to be a goel. This was not a foregone conclusion. This is not the picture of Ruth coming to Boaz and saying, you have to do this for me because you owe me. And it's not the picture of Boaz coming to this man, this other kinsman, and saying, you have to redeem Ruth because it's your duty. No, you look at the pictures that were laid out in the Old Testament law, and this was a matter of choosing on the part of the Redeemer. He was not obligated to do this work. He had to be willing. You see here this beautiful picture that every redeemer had to be ready and willing and able to do what it took to redeem the one. To redeem the one that he loved. Church, do you see your Savior in this? Do you see your Savior that he was ready, he was willing, he was able to do the work of being our redeemer? We see it so powerfully here. And as we look at these things, guys, this, Ron, will you just take this over for me this morning? This thing is not wanting to work today. All right, there we go. Put that out of the way. We look at the Redeemer of, of Jesus Christ and we see him. Why is it that Jesus couldn't redeem from a distance? Why did he have to step out of heaven and step in to human flesh, become a man, dwell among us, live among us, experience the mess of our lives, why could he not just redeem us from a distance? Because of what God had set up. 
Redemption could only take place through a near relative. Through someone who was closely tied to the one to be redeemed. And so he became flesh and dwelt among us. And he lived a perfectly sinless life. Let us not miss, though, the the gravity of his incarnation. That word means he came literally in the flesh. And that wasn't just an optional part of his redemption. It wasn't as if Jesus had the choice, well, do you want to just snap your fingers from heaven and everybody be redeemed? Or do you want to enter into their existence? No, there was only one way for us to be redeemed, and he was willing to do it. So he became flesh and dwelt among us. He became a near relative to us. Number two, he was ready to pay the price. But the price here, I need you to understand this morning, the price was not simply a monetary amount. The price was his very life. His blood was poured out for the covering, for the covering of your sin. His blood was poured out so that you might be redeemed. The price was paid and only he could pay it. But finally, I need you to understand this morning that when Jesus came as our Redeemer, he did not come with any obligation upon himself. He came with a desire to redeem us. A desire to restore a right relationship with us. A desire to renew us, restore us, and have us for himself. This is our Redeemer. We see here in this first paragraph, though, there was this other Redeemer here. And when he hears about the opportunity of getting the land, man, he is all in. I am all over this, buddy, getting some more property. This is good because, again, that's the wealth of that day. That means I can plant more crops. There's all good stuff here. But then Boaz, I think he's pretty wise here. Boaz says, oh, yeah, there's one more catch. There's Ruth the Moabitess. If you take the land, you have to take her too. And we see the guy backpedaling. Whoa, I can't sign on for that. You see, he was interested in the place, but he had no interest in the people. I think that attitude exists. The attitude of this Redeemer is all over the landscape of our culture today. It's a very me-centered attitude that says, whatever I can get out of a situation, I want to get, but as soon as it costs me something, uh, I'm really going to have to determine whether I'm ready to pay that price. He wanted the place that became available. He had no desire for the people that were attached to it. And many people have the same attitude toward God's church today. You start talking about the promise of heaven, of the the place with God, and people say, yeah, I want that. You start talking about the purpose of God, and in some modified form, I believe people say, yeah, I want that. But you start talking about the people of God, that being a part of the family of God, and dwelling among the people of God in this body called the church, this family of God, and people go, whoa, that's a little bit too costly. I want to go to heaven, and, and, and I'm okay with the purpose of God in my life so far as it suits me. But if i got to have a relationship with people in the church, man, those are a bunch of Moabites. And let's all raise our hand and say, yep, that's us. We're a bunch of Moabites. We're a bunch of good-for-nothings. 
We're not, not many of us, as the New Testament says, not many of us are wise, not many of us are wealthy, not many of us have much political power. We're, we're a whole bunch of nobodies, and there are some who look at the church, and even today I read an article just this week that was talking about the vanishing church in America. There are more churches closing their doors in America today than opening new churches. And you look at that, where are we going to be 10 years from now? I don't really know what the answer to that question is, but I know this. The church will remain until the Redeemer returns for His bride. The church will continue to exist until the Redeemer returns for His bride. And that day is coming. So we have two attitudes before us. The attitude of the no-name Redeemer and the attitude of Boaz, who pictures the attitude of Jesus in Philippians 2. Let's look at this scripture. Let each of you, Philippians 2, verses 4 through 7, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Having this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. He was willing to pay the price, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Aren't you glad your Redeemer was willing to pay the price? Willing to do whatever it took to redeem his people. To buy them back for himself. Number two on your outline, we've seen that we are wanted by our Redeemer, but we also need to see in the second paragraph, we are witnesses of our Redeemer. And so he calls upon those who were gathered there that day. Again, imagine that gate like we would imagine the courthouse. And he calls out this group known as the elders of the city. Now, when you hear the term elders, you you don't necessarily want to think just of older people. That's not the idea here. These were the leaders of the city. These would have been those who had um, the political power in that day. But you've got to understand, there was no separation of church and state here. So while these were political leaders, they were also religious leaders. And he calls upon these men and says, Come over and witness this transaction that's getting ready to happen. Come and sit with us and be witnesses. The idea of witnessing is an Old Testament idea. We often think about it as a New Testament idea when Jesus said, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. But it goes back to the Old Testament idea. In the Old Testament, in the law, it said this, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. So basically, if you committed a crime and there was only one person that saw you do it, there was only one witness to that crime, they would not hear your case. Because every matter had to be established by a testimony of two or three witnesses. It was said several times in the Old Testament that this idea that every matter had to be established by a multiplicity of witnesses. And so he calls upon these elders of the city, these leaders of the city. I think that they prefigure the biblical picture of elders in the New Testament that we talked about in our trip through the book of Titus a few months ago. He calls upon these leaders and he says, come, sit with us. And you witness, you sign off on, you attest to what we're getting ready to do. He said, I'm going to redeem 
Naomi, her property, and even more so, I want her daughter-in-law as my wife. And there's this weird picture. So the one man, the no-name redeemer, takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz. It seems like a weird picture to us. We're going, what's the whole deal with the sandal here? It's really an awesome picture. The, the picture here is this. You think back to the days of Joshua. You will remember, first of all, Abraham was promised. He was promised a people, a purpose, and what was the third thing? A place, a land, right? A people, a purpose, and a place. A land was promised. You fast forward from Abraham several hundred years and you come to Joshua. And Joshua is leading the now half a million strong descendants of Abraham. He's leading them into that place, into that promised land. And what does God say to Joshua? Here's what you're to do. You all are to go and you're just to walk through the land. Scope it out. See all that I've given to you. This beautiful picture of, I, I want to bless you with this land. It says a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a beautiful land. It's a wonderful land. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to get up, and as you, as you cross across the Jordan River, I just want you to go, and I want you to scope it out. I just want you to go and see what I have for you. I want you to walk through this land. It's this beautiful picture of what it'll be like for us one day. I believe he's going to say that to us when we get to heaven. When he's going to say, I, want, I just want you to see it all. I want you to go and I want you to scope it out. I want you to see what I have for you in this place. And so that morning as they began to scope out the promised land, they all strapped on their sandals and began to walk. By the time it comes down to Ruth, a few hundred years after Joshua, they had this practice. Whenever any interaction was going on with the land, if a piece of land was being bought or sold, one man would take his sandal and hand it to the one who was buying it. It was a reminder of, just like we strapped on our sandals to walk through this land when the Lord gave it to us, so we are reminding ourselves that this land ultimately does not belong to us. It belongs to him. He is the Lord of the land. We are merely his stewards, his caretakers. Church, that's a good reminder for us. Everything that you have does not belong to you. I know that that sounds very offensive to some. Well, I've worked hard, and I've, I've pulled myself up by my own bootstraps, and I'm a self-made man, and I've got all this for myself. As long as you think that way, you'll miss the kingdom of God. You'll miss it, because the beautiful picture that God is wanting to give here is one of stewardship, that everything that we have comes to us as a gift of God for us to steward well. But when we start clinging to it like this, as this particular no-name redeemer, he said, I can't mess with that whole situation because that'll mess up my inheritance. That's going to cost too much. It's going to mess up my deal. It's just too messy. I'm out. But Boaz was willing to deal with the mess. Why? Because he loved the one that he was about to redeem. We are witnesses of our Redeemer Witnesses of what, first of all, that he sought us. Verses 7 8, this, this picture of what's happening here with the sandal, Boaz is seeking to do what this other redeemer is unwilling to do. Would you hear this, church? Jesus was the only one that could redeem you. 
And in the truest sense of the word, we hear this. He is the only one who was willing to pay the price. He is the only one who could. He was the only one who was able. And he is the only one that wanted to. And he did. He sought us. Let her be there. He bought us. He said, witness before me, folks. You've got this crowd gathered here. You all are witnesses. I'm getting ready to pay the redemption price. I'm going to pay this price not just to redeem the land, but to redeem this widow, to redeem the name of this man who is already dead and gone, that his name might be carried on. Boaz was willing to step up and do what had to be done as the Goel, as the Redeemer. He sought us, he bought us, and he blessed us. Look at verses 11 and 12. This is a, it's kind of a strange blessing. It starts out pretty normal. The people said, we are witnesses. In other words, we're signing off on this. The deal is done. We see it. All is good. And they speak this blessing. So may the Lord make this woman who is coming into your house, may he make Ruth, like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. Now, of course, you know Rachel and Leah. These are the wives of, of Jacob, two generations removed from Abraham was Jacob. And Jacob had these two wives, Rachel and Leah, who were the source of the 12 tribes of Israel. They were the ones who built up, produced the house of Israel, the 12 tribes from which everyone here is, is everyone in, the, in this particular story, except for Ruth, by the way, was descended. All the Israelite people were descended from these 12 tribes. And they're saying, speaking a blessing over Ruth, the one who should have been excluded from that picture because she was a Moabite, saying, may your house be like it was for Rachel and Leah. May there be a people that come from you that will be God's people and a blessing to many nations. Secondly, may you act worthily in Ephrathah and be renowned in Bethlehem. There he speaks of the place. The first part of the blessing is about the people. The second part of the blessing is about the place. May you have a name that is renowned, that's lifted up, that's known. May you be known in this place. Now, Boaz was already known as a worthy man, but God was getting ready to do something even bigger than that. In this blessing, they're saying, may you be given a name that will be known. May great things come as a result in this place. Blessing on the people, blessing on the place. And then he says this strange thing in verse 12. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. Now, if you're not familiar with that Old Testament story, you're going, if you are familiar, you're going, that doesn't sound like a really good blessing. Genesis chapter 38, and I'll try to fast forward through this story. You can go home and read it for yourself. Right in the midst of those later chapters of Genesis, where God is telling the story of Joseph, this man of integrity and godliness, this, this younger son, Joseph, son of Jacob. God is telling this amazing story of Joseph and how, of course, his brother sold him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt. He becomes the second in command of Egypt and rescues his whole family from famine and death. It's an amazing story. Right in the middle of that story, God drops the story of Judah and Tamar, Judah being the older brother of Joseph, and he definitely wasn't the man of integrity that Joseph was. And here's how the story goes. Judah had three sons. The oldest of those sons married a Canaanite girl named Tamar. 
That oldest son, though, was very wicked. His name was Ur, and his, he was very wicked, and the Lord put him to death because of his wickedness, and he had no descendants. He would have been, would have been cut off, as we've been talking about, no descendants to carry on his name. So according to these laws, the second son, a guy named Onan, steps into the picture, marries Tamar, takes her as his wife, but he also acts wickedly against the Lord. You can read that for yourself, too, in Genesis 38. I'm not going to describe that picture this morning. And he acts wickedly against the Lord in Genesis 38. He, too, dies. And the third son was, was really young. The third son was young, and Judah comes to Tamar, and he makes her this promise. He says, well, you know, my third son, he's supposed to marry you, but he's too young yet. Wait till he grows up, and when he gets old enough, then I'll give him to you in marriage as well. But Judah had no intention of doing that because he's looking at the situation going, okay, I've had two sons that have married this lady, and both of them have kicked the bucket. Does it seem like a good idea to marry her off to the third one? I mean, it just doesn't sound like a good picture here. I mean, have you heard the term black widow? That sounds kind of like what's going on here. Uh, anybody who marries Tamar is ending up dead, so let's not do that. The third son gets old enough to marry Tamar, and she notices that while he's old enough to be married to her, she is not given in marriage to him. So she hears that Judah is going to be making a trip. He's going to be making a trip out of town. And so what she does is, she takes, off of her, she takes off her widow's clothes and she puts on the clothing of a prostitute and she goes and sits by the roadside. And as Judah's walking down the road, he sees her there and he walks up to her to engage with a prostitute as one might. And in payment for the activity that takes place there, he has nothing to give her except for his cord and his staff. Those were symbols of his family. He says, I'll leave these with you until I can send you payment for what we've just done. And then he goes home, takes one of his servants aside and says, here's what's happening. I'm sending you with this sheep in order to make payment. The servant goes and can't find her anywhere. He asks around, where's the prostitute that sits here by the roadside? And everybody's looking at him like, what are you talking about? And he goes back to Judah and says that she's not there. And Judah says, well, let's just keep this between ourselves lest we look like a bunch of idiots. This never happened. We're going to tuck this away in history. No one will ever know this took place. Watch what God does. It was just in a matter of weeks. They find out that the daughter-in-law, Tamar, is now pregnant. And Judah, pretending to be all righteous, not knowing that he was a part of the picture, she had disguised herself from him, not knowing what the fullness of this is, well, she should be put to death because she's obviously committed fornication. She has sinned against the Lord. Let's put her to death. And wisely, Tamar takes his cord and his staff and sends it to him, express mail, and says, the father of the children in my womb is the man to whom these belong. And this is one of those moments in the scripture where you ought to hear this music. Dun, dun, dun. This is like when Nathan confronts David about the whole Bathsheba incident. Here, all the cover-up is removed. Everything is exposed. And Judah's response was this. She has acted more righteously than I have. It was a life-changing moment for Judah, as we see later in the book of Genesis. 
But think about the hideousness of that story, all the ugliness of what took place there. You go home and read it. Read Genesis 38 and 39, and you, you see it for yourself. It's one of those chapters I wonder, God, why'd you include that? Like, you could have left that out, and we would have been fine. But you included that messy, ugly story. And then in Ruth chapter 4, it's used as a blessing. May your house be like the house of Perez. Two sons were born in that illicit affair between Judah and Tamar. Two twin boys. One's name was Perez. May your house be like the house of Perez. And I don't know about you, but that's probably not a blessing I would really want on my household. Imagine how Perez grew up being the product of that messed up relationship. But watch what God does. May your house be like the house of Perez whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Just a quick truth, church. No matter how ugly and messy the situation, our God is powerful enough to redeem it. That's what you learn from Judah and Tamar. How do I know that? Stay with me, we're almost done. Let me give you a scripture from 2 Corinthians real quick. 2 Corinthians 1.20, speaking about Jesus, the Apostle Paul writes, For all the promises of God, think back to Genesis chapter 12 and Abraham, all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him, through Jesus, that we utter our amen to God for his glory. The promises of God find their fulfillment in Jesus. The promise of for God's people, for God's place, for God's purpose. They all find their summation in one person, the person of Jesus Christ. Every promise that God has made, Old and New Testament, find its fulfillment in Jesus. If you're wondering what this book is about, it's all about Him. If you don't know anything else, you need to know that. This book from beginning to end, all that weird stuff in Leviticus, it's all ultimately about Jesus. It all finds its fulfillment in Him. Lastly this morning... And I'm going to fly through this last point for the purposes this morning. We are wedded to our Redeemer. We are wanted by Him. We are witnesses for Him. But we are wedded to Him. You see this beautiful picture. And so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. The wedding day takes place. And it says, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her. Notice this great gift of God's grace. The Lord gave her conception. All those years that she was with Malon, no children were born. And now the Lord gave, as a gift of his grace, the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. And then look what it says. And then the women said to Naomi, another blessing is spoken over this family. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And we might think that they're talking about Boaz. But stay with me. Read the rest of this with me. It's so amazing what God does here. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. We might think that she's talking, they're talking about Boaz. May his name be renowned in Israel. Might still be talking about Boaz. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Could still be Boaz. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. It's not Boaz, is it? The redeemer... It's now this little baby. An amazing picture of what we celebrate this time of year. 
that the Redeemer came not as a full-grown man, but as a helpless baby. And here this name Obed means servant. And our Redeemer came not to rule over us as he had right, but to serve us. Three last things about our Redeemer. Number one, he is our sin redeemer. Boaz came to redeem Ruth from poverty, from widowhood. Jesus came to redeem us from something far greater. He redeemed us from sin. And ultimately, that's why I pointed out the fact here that it wasn't Boaz being blessed here. The blessing was passed on to Obed. You see, this blessing was passed on generation after generation. In the last paragraph that we're going to look at next week, as we move into Matthew chapter 1, you see these generations beginning with Perez, the young man who was born out of this illicit affair between Judah and Tamar. He begins a line of righteousness of people who are raised up by God for the purpose of bringing into the world a king. It ends there with David, the greatest king Israel knew. And David was merely the precursor of Jesus. Big picture, pull back the veil, see what God is doing. Finally, his name is world-renowned. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There are pockets of the world today, still 4,000 people groups in the world today, who have yet to hear the name of their Redeemer. This is why we do missions, church. This is why we go to unreached people groups to share the gospel. This is why we go to proclaim the name of Jesus because there is salvation under heaven given through no other name. At the name of Jesus, we are saved and redeemed. His name is world-renowned and will be completely world-renowned. When he returns again, everyone will know who he is. And finally, he is the life restorer. Look what he said, they say to Naomi, he's going to be a restorer of life to you in your old age. This amazing picture here of what our Savior has done for us. He has come to restore life, to give us abundant life. And I'll leave you this morning with John twenty thirty one. John writes, but these things are written. He's referencing all the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation the fullness of God's word, these are written so that you may believe. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have what? You may have life in his name. Ultimately, that's what the book of Ruth is all about. It's ultimately not about Ruth. It's not about Boaz, it's not about Naomi, it's not even about Obed. It's not even about King David who gets the last name in this book. It's ultimately about the son of David, the descendant of David, who is going to come into the world not as a king, but as the poor son of a carpenter. Born not in a fancy nursery, but in a stable. Laid not in a beautiful crib with a frilly spread but in a feeding trough coming not as a king as he deserved but as a servant for those who deserve nothing from him why because he wanted you because he wanted you to be his witnesses and because against all of what seems like wisdom to us. 
He wanted to be wedded to you. His desire was not to leave you in the field, but to bring you into his home as his bride. Church, will you see the picture this morning? He was not willing to leave you gleaning for scraps in the field. He desired to have you as his own. To be with him, not just for a moment, but for an eternity. You just receive his love this morning. In the quietness of this moment, will you just bow your heads for a moment? We're going to end with a song this morning, but before we get to that, just take a quiet moment to contemplate, to think upon, to rejoice in, to meditate on your Redeemer. See him in Boaz who was willing to pay the price. Above and beyond the no-name Redeemer, Boaz was willing to step in and do whatever it took. See him in little baby Obed, a baby of great promise and blessing. And yet even those who spoke that blessing over him had no idea of the grandness of what would come from his life. Just two generations later, King David would be his descendant. And then a thousand years would pass and God would send into the virgin womb of a young teenage girl named Mary, a descendant of David herself, a baby, a baby that changed everything. His name is Jesus, and he died on the cross for your sins. He died so that you could have life. And he rose from the dead to guarantee all the promises of God are yes, they are amen, they are so be it, they are fulfilled, they are yours in Christ Jesus. The only question that remains is this. Will you put your faith in him? Will you take him at his word? Will you give your life to him just as Ruth gave hers to Boaz? Will you trust him to redeem what you've broken? To restore what you've messed up? To give you life that you've never known? To make you a part of his people? To invite you in to his place and to give you purpose? These are his promises to you. Will you receive them by faith today? Trust him. He is worthy. Father, lead us in this song. Even more so, lead us to respond to you by faith in you. May we see our Redeemer, God. Would you help us? Would you pull back the veil just for a moment that we might see Him, that we might know that He loves us, that we are wanted by Him, that we have been called to be His witnesses, and that we are His bride. Help us to enter in, Lord, to abide in that place. In Jesus' name.
stand together and sing this song.